Please remain standing. Um, Today's scripture comes from Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you saying, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But as for me, I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for giving us the chance to worship you in a space like this. I pray that you will speak through Pastor Steve today, and I pray that this service will go exactly the way you have planned it to go, Lord God. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. That was Elena. We're just uh, grateful for everybody who participates in our worship time. Can we just say thanks to all those who serve and serve us? We, uh, we are in week two of a series called Rise, where we're talking about the Psalms. Last week, we talked about the importance of worship and why it matters, why it's a priority to praise God. Now, not every Psalm was written by King David, but this particular one was written by King David, and so it makes sense for us to talk a little bit about, to offer some, some uh, biography and some history here so that we can understand the context for this. I can, I can guess that some of you are wondering, did they get the wrong psalm, <laughs> right? Maybe, because it wasn't very uplifting for a while, right? Um, you guys were thinking, maybe, you know, they gave her the wrong thing to read and, oh, poor, you know, poor Elena, she's, she's going to be embarrassed. But this is the right psalm, and David did write it, and we are going to talk about it today. Now, David was a young man when he was anointed king, and the way it, the way it all went down was the prophet said, you're going to be the king, and then sometime later, David is asked by his dad to go deliver uh, some, some food to his brothers who are locked in conflict with the Philistines and their champion, who's named Goliath. Now, David sees everybody else who's scared and unwilling to act, and he decides, well, first of all, he gets upset, and then he decides he's going to do something about it. He stands up and says, how dare you uh, to, to Goliath, and against all odds, he actually triumphs over Goliath, killing him that day and becoming an overnight celebrity, all right? Now, you would think that giant killing would be good preparation for being a king, but it turns out that God had a lot more in mind than just that. Matter of fact, there were many more years that would follow. Instead of creating celebrity, David's victory stirred up quite a bit of adversity as well for him. The king at the time, who's named Saul, 
gets jealous. He sees, first of all, that everybody loves David. And literally, the Bible says that as they come back from the battle, the women of Israel are dancing in the streets, singing songs about David, saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And of course, you can imagine why that would make Saul a little bit jealous. But not only that, Saul is angry that everything David does seems to succeed. And so things go south. David's success has brought him close to Saul's family, but that proximity makes Saul suspect him even more. And so he tries to kill David twice, all right? The first time that he throws a spear at David, I imagine David was like, did he, was he? And then the second time he was like, I got to get out of here, right? And that's exactly what happened. David runs to the wilderness to a place called Nob. And so I'm going to read actually a little bit more of this story so you can actually appreciate from the Bible how this story is told. One of the, David's life story in the Bible is just really very interesting to read, but it goes like this. David went to Nob to Ahimelech, who was a priest. Ahimelech was alarmed as he went out to greet David. What are you doing here all by yourself? David answered Ahimelech, the priest, the king sent me on a mission and he gave strict orders. This is top secret, not a word of this to a soul. I've arranged to meet up with my men in a certain place. Now, what do you have to eat? Do you have five loaves of bread? Give me whatever you can scrounge up. So the priest gave them the holy bread and it was the only bread he had, bread of the presence that had been removed from God's presence and replaced by fresh bread at the same time. One of Saul's officials was present that day, keeping a religious vow. His name was Doeg the Edomite, not Doug. I thought that would be great, right, Doug? Doug the Edomite. His name was Doeg the Edomite. He was chief of Saul's shepherds. Now, this is a difficult turn of events for David. Not long ago, he's a rising star, okay? But now he's a hunted man. Things have been good in the past, but now they've turned to bad, and they are currently getting worse. He's gone from the palace, if you will, from the West Wing all the way to the wilderness, from women dancing in the streets singing spontaneous songs about him to spears being chucked at him and stuck in the wall. Please note today that the song of men and the spear of men oftentimes go together. So I want to give you a few points from the psalm and, and kind of walk our way through this because at its heart today, I want to talk about how we deal with unfairness. I want to talk about how we deal with injustice, how we deal with loss, just touching on these subjects from the Psalms today, and I just want to offer you a few, a few things that I really believe might help you understand this a little bit better. So a few points. Point number one, something I'm fond of saying, if you serve God long enough, some of your exclamation points will turn to question marks. And actually... There's a, there's a scholar named Walter Brueggemann who has a really nice, um, uh, does a really nice uh, commentary on the Psalms. Uh, he's an Old Testament scholar. And one of his basic thing, that it, framework that has really helped me, he talks about the Psalms are really basically in three categories. And some of you who've learned other things, you say, oh, well, the, this happens to be what's called an imprecatory Psalm. That's not one of the categories that I'm talking about. It means, it means when we're just yelling at somebody and we're angry, all right? And that's, that's what David is angry here. But, but, the way Brueggemann talks about it, he says there are psalms of orientation, and those are the praise the Lord, everything's good psalms, right? And then he says there are psalms of disorientation, which are the ones that we've got here, or the, one that, the ones that I'm going to refer to a little bit later on where everything was good and now it's bad. What's up, God? <laughs> 
And then there are the Psalms of reorientation, which is everything was good, and then it went bad, but now it's good again. Praise you, Lord. <laughs> it really helps if you understand that the Psalms are really a reflection of our own human experience and how we worship in the midst of it. And the fact is, we will face great disappointments in our lives. Some of the question marks, some of the things that we declared with great certainty may one day turn, sorry, some of the exclamation points may one day turn to question marks. Adversity, abuse, betrayal. These are all things that people face on the day to day in our community and in our world. The interesting thing about David and when we see what was going on with him is that not only do we get his biography from 1 Samuel, but we also get his song journal too. <laughs> That's why it's really helpful because the Psalms are the, are the record of his best and his worst times. Many of you have had some best times, moments when you felt close to God. And then like David, you've also had some times where you felt like God was MIA. Where are you, God? Now, there are sad songs. There's, as a matter of fact, that's kind of one of the, that's a, you could have, there aren't many happy songs. There's almost more sad songs. And you can have lots of different versions of sad songs, but country music is really famous for, for sad songs. I, I, I have this thing, like, girl, like girls that live in Illinois. Yeah, right? That's a great way to start a sentence, right? <laughs> the Me Too people are like, what's he going to say? Girls that live in Illinois, I'm doubling down, aren't I? <laughs> it's a funny thing that I, I would get in people's cars, and the first thing that will come on is country music. I'm like, why, why do you listen to country music? I don't know where, but I, I, it's a popular genre of music, I think, for, not for the sad songs. I think they like it because it feels good. It's really warm and relational, and, and that's a nice, it's a wholesome kind of music, right? I don't know what it is. I'm not a, a big fan, as a matter of fact. You know, I... I really am not, uh, I don't like um, country music, and I won't denigrate people who do like it. <laughs> but for those of you who do like it, denigrate is a word that means to put down, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I have used that one before, and I keep that loaded in the holster all the time. It's such a great burn. No, I really did. These are real country music song titles. Um, I would just love for you to appreciate them because they're some sad titles. If you can't live without me, why aren't you dead? All right? That's a, that's a country music song title. I went back to my fourth wife for the third time, gave her a second chance to make a first-class fool out of me. You could, you could just almost feel it as it's happening. I went back to my fourth wife for the third time. You were only a splinter as I slid down the banister of life. <laughs> this is probably my favorite. Uh, I'm so miserable since you left me, it's like you're still here. <laughs> I just love that. But this one takes the cake for, for directness. Uh, you're the reason our kids are ugly. Let's bring it back around to the Psalms now. <laughs> the Psalms are filled not just with the, those songs of orientation where everything is good, but also songs of anger and frustration, uh, abandonment, this sadness that you can pick up in the Psalms. We don't sing them all in church because that would be a huge bummer on a Sunday morning, right? But 
The bottom line is, when, we, when you go through the Psalms and you see David or another psalmist who's writing saying, tears have been my food day and night. God, where are you? Day and night I lie awake wondering when you're going to come through for me. Those are the feelings that you and I, I think, can relate to. Psalm 22 says it like this, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I have no rest. There would be some people in here who have experienced seasons like that. And maybe, even maybe, there might be a few people who are experiencing it now. I want you to know that what you're going through is not the sign that God has abandoned you, okay? And the Psalms are really push us to understand that. When we think about Psalms, there's a certain music that comes to mind, and it kind of sounds like this a little bit. You might recognize this just when you think of what the Psalms sound like. Right, that, that seems like some pretty good psalm-like music. But when you think about the psalms, you probably don't think of this kind of music, which is, I think, a little bit different. And then this is, this is Albert King saying this. If it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no luck at all, <laughs> right? We don't think of it, we don't think of that being a psalm, but I like to think that this is probably closer, Albert King is probably closer to our text than Handel's Messiah, right? Most of you say, well, that's backsliding music. We don't, <laughs> we don't listen to that. But the psalms give us permission to be undignified and to be uncomposed. They recognize that we aren't always feeling full of praise alleluias before God. We aren't always ready to charge the hill, raise the banner. Sometimes we're reeling from the doctor's report or the budget shortage or the tension in, in relationships in our home. Sometimes we aren't feeling like praising God. And in those moments, it doesn't, he it doesn't really help to hear somebody say, well, God's got a plan or there's a purpose in everything. Saying this is true, but it also might get you punched in the face. <laughs> I hope that it is encouraging for you to be in church. But when you leave this place, you will go back to the situation that you left to be able to arrive here. The band isn't going to be there. That would be weird. There's not going to be texts and scriptures on the screen. There's not going to be music playing. It's just going to be you and the situation that you are up against. But God will be with you. The Psalms never ignore the ugly realities of life. They never condemn us for doubting or questioning God. They never wink at the fear or the anxiety that we might experience or the discouragement or the pain that might overtake us when we are betrayed or hurt by someone else. And so when your exclamation marks turn, when your exclamation points turn to question marks, remember God is still faithful. Number two, God permits adversity not to define us, but to refine us. Not to diminish us, but to increase us. Now, that is, a, that is a heavy statement. And anybody who's suffering or who's suffered, it's really hard to say, this is intended by God. It will be allowed into your life not to diminish you, but to increase you. God doesn't waste a single moment or a single struggle in our lives while we trust him. 
C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we can rest contentedly in our sins and we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There is no university that you can go to that will teach you all you need to know about God. God will speak certain things to you in times of adversity that you may not be able to learn any other way. He will teach you things through all the, that, the, the, these, uh, these, these different kinds of suffering that we're talking about. He will teach you things through that that you can't learn by any other means. In one season of my life where I was grappling really for survival, after the loss of my first wife, I, I, I literally traveled. As the months went on, I started traveling to visit mentors of mine, people who'd spoken into my life before, hoping they could give me a word that would just somehow bring some peace in the midst of that great grief. And I was with one of them, Don Triplett, who's a missionary for decades in, in, in El Salvador, and Don and I spent days together. I stayed with he and his wife, Terry. They're, they're like, they've been like, you know, a second set of parents to me since I was 18 years old. And, and oh, nothing, nothing to say. Don had nothing to say. We talked, we talked, we talked, but there was nothing that would really get to it. And as we drove to the airport, we were talking, and I was like literally saying, Don, you got to understand, like, I'm really struggling here. And this is all he had to say to me at this moment. He said, Steve, learn your lessons. That really stinks. <laughs> but there's a truth in it. And I could feel it when he said it, that it was true. It was almost if, as if God was like pushing it into my heart. Learn your lesson, Steve, because there, there are things to be learned during this season that you can't learn any other way. And it's important that you pay attention. During Growth Track, when we, uh, when we sit down with people who are interested in being a part of our dream team and serving here at New City Church, we, we talk about spiritual gifts and the gifts that God gives for serving people. We talk about the indications. How do you know what your gifts are or where your area is that you could serve other people? And we talk about skills that have developed. We talk about passions that you have, things that you care deeply about. But then there's this other thing that always surprises people that we say, your pain is an indication of how you might serve people. Because in your pains that you've experienced, God, God uniquely equips you to bless other people and to be there. I, I say it like this, tomorrow, today's misery might become tomorrow's ministry. A.W. Tozer said, it is doubtful that God can use a man unless he wounds him deeply. I've counseled a lot of people who've experienced loss in their lives. And every time I've helped them see that their response to this pain is going to, my hope is, I should say, to, to, to get them to see that the, their response to their pain is going to be the difference between being crushed by it or being enlarged by it. It's possible for us to be crushed. Don't get me wrong. But if we respond in trust to the Lord, if we look to the Lord like we sang about in that song, if we will put our hope and our faith in him, we will be enlarged by the experiences that we walk through. Psalm 126 says this, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Now, as a Christian, I like to think that I don't shed tears, I sow tears, right? Every time I, I am 
in going through an experience of deep pain or grief or loss, what I know in my life is that God is not wasting that moment. Those tears are being sown. Now, that doesn't make the hurt any less real or difficult. It just means that God is able to use what was meant for our destruction and work it out for our redemption and for blessing. Amen? Now, David in this moment is no longer a shepherd writing songs. He's the man who is disillusioned and scared. And David, who has been faithful, is wondering, God, why isn't it working? And that question shows a lot. When we find ourselves asking that question, God, I've, been, I've tried to do the right thing. You know, I've been a decent person. Why isn't it working? Why am I going through this? That shows a lot about how we see our relationship with God, doesn't it? I've been pretty good, God. You know, I... I've been, I've been trying to give. It's not, you know, it's like, you know, like, it's not a lot, but I've been given pretty faithfully. And, you know, why am I not, why, why have I lost my job? It isn't working. And, and I would say that just gives an indication that we still see this relationship with God sometimes as transactional, right? Like, I'll do something for you, God, but you better, you're going to owe me after that. And we forget in the meantime how that would go down were it truly transactional, Right? David is wondering, why isn't this working? And he gets food and he gets a weapon from Ahimelech, but Saul is searching for David and he can't find him. So Saul does this. He has a staff meeting and he gathers his, his guys together and he says, uh, it goes like this. Actually, you could see it in, in 1 Samuel 22, just a little bit later. It says, then, then Doug the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, spoke up. I saw the son of Jesse meet with Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, in Nob. I saw Ahimelech pray with him for God's guidance, give him food, and arm him with the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And so, this is what happens. Saul sends for Ahimelech. The king sends for Ahimelech and all of the other priests who are with him, and he brings them in front of, them, in front of him, and he basically has a, has a quick trial. And he says, you all are guilty of aiding and abetting my enemy. And so, what he does is he says, he orders his men, kill these priests. And none of the men will do it. They're like, we're not going to do it because we know these men are innocent. But guess who steps up? Doug. Doeg. <laughs> Doeg the Edomite steps up and actually leads the way and slaughters 85 innocent men. Now, I want to take you back to Psalm 52. And if you look in your Bibles, almost all of your Bibles will have this little note in there because it's actually included in the ancient texts. And it says this, Psalm 52, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. So that is the context. After David finds out that the priests have been slaughtered, he says this, speaking to Doeg, why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who practice disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit, whose tongue plots destruction? It's like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Now it makes more sense, right? Because David is fuming. He is raging with anger. There is no denying or sugarcoating what has happened here. And David actually names in the text, the Bible actually names the person Doeg the Edomite. But here's how David handles it. Here's why we're so blessed to have his song journal. Because he takes his anger and he brings it to the Lord. 
Psalm 52, verse 8 9 says, But as for me, I'm like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, for your name is good. This is what I believe we can see when we look at David's song journal. Number three, it's possible to keep a right heart even when you've been done wrong. It's not easy, but it's possible. David says, I'm angry, and I want justice. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with saying that you want justice. That's the right posture for God's people to take. But he says, as for me, I'm like a green olive tree flourishing in the house of God. He says, I'm, not, I'm angry, but even though I've been done wrong, I'm not going to let my heart be poisoned by this. Why keep a right heart even when you've been done wrong? First of all, it breaks the cycle of hurt and retribution. Now, I know that this is true when it comes to family relationships, that we get hurt and we say, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to smile at the holiday, but I'm going to get them back. <laughs> but it works this way between families and communities and even nations. Our country and our world needs this now more than ever. People will oftentimes say Christians are the problem. And I actually think sometimes we might be. <laughs> Some people who name the name of Christ might be the part of the problem. That's, that's a thing. And but honestly, where Christians have failed, it's not because we have been too Christian, but because we have not been Christian enough. And you can mark that down and you can write that for a lot of different things. You can apply that in a lot of different ways. Where, where Christians have failed, it's not because we've been too Christian, but because we have been not Christian enough. In our families, and in our communities, in our politics, and in our public discourse, we have to be willing to depart from the party lines to be able to speak as a Christian from a right heart, but with truth. When we keep a right heart, we stop the back and forth cycle of hurt and revenge. We say, you know what? I will want, I will want justice, but I will not act in the same way that you have acted. And so we absorb the hurt. That's the best way for me to describe it. We absorb the hurt and we say it's going to stop with me. Why? Keep a right heart. Secondly, because your gentleness is the sign pointing others to God's overruling grace. You see how David turns here. I'm angry, and he has a right to be. He says, I'm fuming. This is evil in its, in its almost purest form, he says, but I will not let my heart be tainted by it. Even though I want to see justice, I will remain right in my heart before the Lord. When they see you having been wronged or grieved or experienced loss, when they see you and your joy and your hope and your love intact, it sends a message that God is able to heal and restore people. It says there is hope even when we are wounded. It says that God is able to overrule whatever circumstances or suffering that has touched our lives. It's the sign when I have a right heart in the midst of my adversity, it's the sign that God is still in control. People can be crushed when they're victimized, crushed when they suffer loss. 
But when my heart stays right in the midst of adversity or unfairness, I'm walking in the faith that God is able to bring me through flourishing like a green olive tree. That's what that says. One more. Why keep a right heart? Because it frees me from being defined by the wrong done to me or by the loss that I've experienced. It's possible for us to build whole identities around hurts or wounds or losses. It's possible to become fixated on them to the point that our sense of self is entirely formed around our our hatred or our indignation toward a person or a group of people. It's possible to define ourselves by the loss that we experience, by what we lack, but God would never have us be defined by what we lack. So I would encourage you, there's nothing wrong with pouring your heart out to God, airing it out. I've been done wrong, God, or I can't believe that I experienced this loss, or God, why am I going through this? Air it all out and take whatever steps you can toward justice, but do not let it consume you. Do not let it define you. How? Moving toward a conclusion here. (laughs) How do I keep a right heart? Stay humble so God has room to work. David is careful to say, I'm going to let God deal with you, Doeg. I'm going to let God deal with you. I know what I want, but I believe that God is going to deal with you. And so this has to be dealt with God's way is what he says. Now, David would be in a position later on as he assumed the throne to actually be the one who's executing justice, the one who's actually, uh, you know, like it... Making the, making the calls on how that is going to happen, but he, he never rushed to that, and he was humble enough to say, I will make sure that, God, that we do things God's way. This isn't David being passive. He's just recognizing God is in control. Sometimes we get mad, but it's the wrong kind of mad, right? The Bible actually says, in your anger, go ahead and be angry, but don't sin in your anger. So there's a right kind of ro- anger, and there's a wrong kind of anger. The danger when I am wronged, is that I can look, watch me here, this is hard, that I can look at the unquestionable wrong that that has been done to me, and I can presume that because I have experienced an unquestionable wrong, that I am unquestionably right. Okay? You find that happen. A lot of times when we are clamoring for justice, we, 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 we lose sight of how important it is to remain humble and recognize that just because there is an unquestionable wrong involved, that I now am unquestionably right. It's worth talking about. Remain humble enough to continually go back to the Lord and say, am I handling this the way that you want me to? To recognize that I'm just as capable of doing wrong as the person who hurt me. From, from, you know, broad issues to everyday hurts in families and relationships, humility keeps us from becoming a monster in order to fight a monster. Lastly, how do I keep a right heart? Remember that our enemy is not flesh and blood. After World War II, the whole world was captivated by the trial of a man named Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was responsible for organizing and managing the Nazi final solution in Eastern Europe. And it was responsible really for creating a system that exterminated millions of Jews. 
The whole world stood on tiptoe to see the architect of such a vast killing machine and what they saw when they looked for this monster who committed these reprehensible acts was they saw a small bespectacled man whose only defense on, <laughs> on the trial was, I was ordered to do it. Now, there's a very interesting moment and instructional for us because here you had a man who might walk by any one of us on the street and we would not think him a threat. We wouldn't think twice about who he is. Now, I want to say that we can always be shocked by, by what evil looks like in our world. But there is, I want to see underneath the Adolf Eichmanns, we talked about it a little bit last week, there's an influence for evil in our world, which is underneath all of that. That's why Paul says, we war not against flesh and blood. We have to remember that. Systems can be influenced by evil. Institutions can be influenced. There is an enemy of our souls who is behind this. Peter said he, he, he kind of prowls around looking for those whom he might devour. And then Peter says this, so resist him. But also remember that we war not against flesh and blood. God's goal is, is to condemn the wrong but save the wrongdoer. You know how I know that? Because that's what he did with me. This month is a special month. It's a celebration of black history. And one of the, one of the most important seasons of our nation's recent history was the civil rights movement in America, not just not just for the progress it achieved, it was impressive, not just for the progress it achieved against steep odds, but really the peaceful means by which the movement achieved that progress. Now, we're not done. On, and in so many areas of our culture, in so many areas of our society, we have still room, so much room to grow up, but, but we could pause, and I think that's what this month is about, and say what an incredible achievement that was and, and really be encouraged by that to continue to move forward. Now, Martin Luther King Jr., who you, everybody here has known about, was a driving influence for a Christian response to the racial injustices in America. So there were other influences at the time. There were other, you know, uh, approaches to that. And, and MLK was, was committed to a Christian response to those injustices. He penned a sermon while in jail in Montgomery, Alabama, during the bus boycotts early in the movement in 1957. And here are his concluding remarks. And I want to read them to you because I feel like there's almost no finer way of illustrating this. He says, my friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. He's talking about, uh, you know, violent resistance. He says, time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation... And for the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is hard for us to listen to, right? Trust me, I know how far out here I am right now. He says, while abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. 
Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Praise God. If that doesn't stir, if you don't feel anger and grief, and at, at the reading of that, I, I, I'm not sure if you've understood the history behind what he's saying. But here is the, is the beauty of what MLK was exemplifying for you and me. And what we can see in our Psalm, Psalm 52 today, is he was saying, is saying, I will not respond to injustice with injustice. He's saying, I will trust God and act in God's ways. And in so doing, not only will we see justice, but we will see redemption. He says, not only will we have a victory, but he says, in winning you, we will have a double victory. That's the kind of God we serve. The one who gives us not just the victory, but the double victory. And folks, I'll say it again, our fault for us in responding to things in our lives oftentimes is not that we have been too Christian, but not Christian enough. Who else will bring God's wisdom to the table if we don't? Who else will respond in God's way if we don't? So how do I keep a right heart? Remember what Jesus did for you and for me. When I remember what Jesus did for me, I'm reminded that even though others have sinned against me, that doesn't mean that I'm righteous. The Bible says that all have sinned and that there is no one who could stand before a holy God and claim to be without fault. We're all perpetrators of that sin. The gospel, the good news, is the place, it's, it's the news that Jesus, who was the one innocent man among us, paid the price for our guilt. I have painted such, with such broad strokes today to talk about everything from personal loss and family strife now to we're, we're, we're on here to uh, civil rights. And, you know, I, I know this is hard to make application for, but I want to challenge you to think like this. I want to challenge you to remember how in Psalm 22, David cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then how later on, some 1,500 years later or more, Jesus used those same words on the cross when he was suffering loss for my sin and for your sin. And he said, I can do even better than that. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David had said it to Doeg, and he concluded it. He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could, how could this happen? How is this evil happening? He says, but I will flourish here in this dark place. Jesus said, I'll do better than that. I can rise from this dark place. Not to Doeg, Jesus would say it, but to death, he would say it. I can do you better, death. I'm going to rise from this dark place. Even though you put me in this tomb, you can kill me, but I will live again. Because 
This is what Jesus did for you and me. And this is what God honors. And this is what God vindicates. That's why Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he used those strange words when we read the earliest preaching of the apostles. They talked about it. They said, God vindicated this man. What were they saying? They were saying, God is putting his stamp of approval on this way of dealing with this by raising him from the dead. So let me encourage you today. God is faithful even in adversity. God sees what you have gone through. And if it is unjust, if it is for some, somehow if it is injustice, God will work with you to make it right. But in the meantime, your heart can stay right and you can flourish like a green olive tree in the house of God in the midst of all of it. Amen? Praise the Lord.